Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, I'm Michael Calori. I am an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to the Gadget Lab podcast. I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Ariel Pardes. Hello. And Lauren Good. Hello. This is the podcast where we take you through the tech news of the week and break down the gadgets, apps, and the services that you need to know about. But it's really not just about gadgets. It's about a relationship with them and how they impact our lives. And right now, app stores are what's impacting our lives, especially if you happen to work for Facebook or Google. <laughs> this week, Apple revoked Facebook and Google's abilities to distribute certain kinds of apps after it was reported, first by TechCrunch, we should give TechCrunch credit for this, that the companies had sidestepped Apple's app store rules. So we're going to spend the new segment today dissecting that story. We're also going to be talking about Tesla on this week's Gadget Lab. Wired senior editor Alex Davies will be joining us to talk about Tesla's latest financial wins and the new Model Y. The company's moving to China and whatever the hell Elon is up to lately. Also, Alex will be shamelessly plugging Wired's new transportation-focused newsletter. And if he doesn't, then we'll do it for him. <laughs> Wait, does that mean that Tesla's car models now spell sexy. Yes. That's correct. Yes. There's the, the Model S, the Model X, the Model E. No, the Model 3, which is mm -hmm, the E, mm -hmm. and then the Y. This is, you had to know this was coming, right? This yeah. is like everyone, so are the next three going to be like the T-O-O? Too sexy. <laughs> I, so I was not a part of the conversation with Alex. I'm sorry that I missed it, but I can't wait to hear it. It's really good. I'm sure you guys really, you get into all this. Uh, first, why don't we talk about the, okay. the news of the Apple App Store? Okay. So on Tuesday, a report from TechCrunch found that Facebook has been paying people as young as 13 years old to download an app that grants Facebook access to their entire phone and web history, including encrypted activity and private messages and emails. Now, this is a research app. It was called Research, and it was allowing Facebook to see how people's friends who have not consented to having their data collected interact with those users too. So it was a little bit problematic. Facebook has said that this app was distributed purely for market research, but then Apple wasn't having that. <laughs> so what it, do we do? We know exactly what Facebook research was. Um, I mean, Facebook for a long time has you know made uh, it's it's made studying how people use their phones and like how you interact with the apps on your phone, like what you click on first, how often you scroll, which features you use. That's been like a big part of their strategy for how they design apps. And according to the reporting that we saw this week, how they go after companies that they want to acquire because they see people edging towards this feature. They find somebody who does that feature really well. And then they use that um, 
they use they, they use that intelligence to buy that company. Right. And one great example of that is WhatsApp. Um, an app that Facebook conceivably saw becoming very popular among young users, global users, and then decided to acquire Mm -hmm. um, based on that research. I think it's fair to sum it up and say they do this for competitive advantage. This is what people do. This is what app makers do, software makers. It's like they want to know how people are using their software, but they also want to be aware of maybe what other activity people are doing on the internet because it's all this giant attention grab Mm -hmm. for your attention, your time, and there's only so much attention you can distribute as a user. They want to know where that's going because that helps them build a better product. So why did Apple revoke Facebook's app? Um, This has to do with with enterprise certificates and the developer program. So I'm not a developer, but (laughs) I'm going to do my best to, to step through this. Um, basically, there are normal people, us, we can only download certain apps to our iPhones, right? You have to go to the App Store to get an app from the iPhone. Um, Apple uh, vets all of the apps that go into the App Store. So they check them to make sure they don't have malware or that they're not spying on you. And then they kick them out of the App Store if they do those things. And that sort of gatekeeping philosophy allows Apple to keep the platform secure. And it allows you uh, to just download things, whatever you want, without necessarily having to worry about security. So uh, in order to get around that, like if I wanted to download an app that was not in the App Store, uh, it would have to be signed by a, a, a Apple developer, would have to have a certificate, a digital handshake that occurs to let my iPhone know that even though this app is not coming from the App Store, it's okay because as an Apple developer, I have the permission to, to put this on your phone for you. Um, they also give these certificates out to enterprises who want to develop their own internal apps. So like an app for, in the example that we saw this week, an app for finding out when your bus is coming. If you live in San Francisco and you take the bus to Facebook every day, there's an app that shows you what the bus routes are and when to expect the next bus so you can time your arrival at the stop. Things like that. Um, apps that let you um, you know, book conference rooms. Uh, apps that let you uh, sign in and out at the front desk. There's all kinds of apps that companies develop that are not distributed through the App Store. And they use these certificates in order to install them onto devices. So Facebook's app, the research app, uh, was distributed to devices outside of the App Store using their certificate. But it was distributed outside the company. Facebook was paying people to just install this on your phone, read through what we're going to be able to watch when you install this. We'll give you a small amount of money, mm-hmm. and then we'll twenty dollars per month, twenty bucks a month, mm-hmm. uh, which just, is not a lot of money. We should not say. a lot of money, but maybe if you're a thirteen year old and <laughs> you're looking to like fuel your app store habit or yeah. whatever your game habit, you're like great, twenty bucks a month yeah. in exchange for like all of your data on your phone, <laughs> all of your private messages, yeah. literally every swipe that you make on your phone. That's Quite quite a low price, that's, I would that's say. What they, that's what they want, right? They want to see how you are using your phone. What are you clicking on? What are you spending the time in the most? Which features are most important to you? It's valuable stuff for Facebook. So, yeah, they were getting it for a song, basically. Hmm. Um, Apple found out about that. That violates the whole purpose of having their certificate program in place. So they revoked access. Now, as Luis, our colleague Luis Matsakis reported, what Facebook was doing was also particularly invasive. It wasn't just that they were distributing outside of these these normal parameters of what constitutes an enterprise app as part of the enterprise app program. They actually were requiring users to install a root certificate, which um, is we're getting into nerdy terminology here, but basically means that Facebook was able to see a lot more, to your point, and as we mentioned earlier, a lot more than you normally would be able to if you're just a regular app developer and gathering, you know, like let's say anonymized aggregate data. Mm-hmm. So that's problematic because one of Apple's big pillars, and they talk <laughs> about it a lot, is privacy, 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 privacy. And this is something we've heard from Tim Cook a lot over the past year, especially. And Facebook, of course, has been in the spotlight for a lot of its privacy issues. And these were just these two sort of, you know, totally divergent approaches to business models and the way these companies operate coming to a head through the App Store, That's or right. the Enterprise App Store. Tim Cook, in particular, has taken every opportunity to throw Mark Zuckerberg under the bus, in particular during the Cambridge Analytica scandal last year. Um, Tim Cook said multiple times things like, our company would never be in this position because that is not how we deal with our customers mm-hmm. and their data, and it's absolutely inexcusable. So this this does sort of seem like another moment where 
Tim Cook has taken the the chance to uh, differentiate the way that Apple runs its business from the way that Facebook runs its. Yeah. Now, Facebook was not the only guilty party this week. What mm-hmm. happened with Google? Well, it turns out that Google was distributing a not so dissimilar app called Screenwise Meter, which also acts like a VPN um, through Apple's enterprise program. So. Apple had to go and say, listen, Google, you're doing the exact same thing here. And Google handled the situation pretty differently. Um, it was uh, a, a lot of like, we're looking into this. We're uh, we're trying to understand how we can solve the problem, uh, which you know is a lot of hand-waving for a very similar situation. But Apple ended up revoking access to that app as well. And although the tone was friendlier, um, it's an interesting sort of example of how this is maybe more widespread than just Facebook alone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, at the bottom of it, it's Apple enforcing policy, right? They've, they've been very clear about what their policy is for these things. It's in writing, you know, in the, I assume it's in writing anyway, in the developer program. And the companies that are doing this are sort of, you know, skirting around the rules to, I mean, everybody wants to know how teens are using their phones. That's like, that is absolute gold data in Mm, Silicon Valley. mm -hmm. How are teens using their phones? So they're trying very hard to find out how that, how, like what, what they're doing on their phones and Apple just says no. And of course, because they go after in this week, in one week, they go after the other two giant companies in Silicon Valley. It turns it, it gives it sort of this tone of like political posturing, doesn't it? It sort of turns into, you know, Apple smacks down Facebook and Google in the same week and asserts its dominance over the valley. I mean, it's a lot smaller than that, but that's sort of the way that it's playing out, especially like in the media and, you know, in the photographs and the headlines that you see. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is just this is an example of a developer breaking the rules of the app store. And uh, it just so happens that in this case, you're talking about one of the largest companies in the world, which is Apple, and you're talking about the largest social media platform in the world, which is Facebook. Mm-hmm. So anytime that there's something going on with these two entities or entities of this size, there's going to be a lot of attention on it. I mean, Apple, we've seen Apple kick apps out of the App Store before. We hear about it all the time from developers just because they didn't follow their rules. I mean, it is a marketplace. It is a marketplace run in the private sector, and Apple makes rules and like, the, you know, like they don't allow porn in their app store, right? Like that's a thing. And you can disagree with those rules, but it's just like a thing. And so Facebook broke the rules. At the same time, I do agree that, and people have been saying this online, um, on Twitter, um, that anything, anything Apple does that seems to be like clamping down on something, controlling something, you know, making rules around something, it deserves some scrutiny or at least a little bit of, uh, wariness around what they're doing and why they're doing it because of their power and influence. So is this the kind of thing where Tim Cook has been peeved about Facebook's approach to privacy for a very long time and this was just the perfect (laughs) opportunity to finally do something about it? Or was it just, oh, okay, TechCrunch surfaced this report that this has been happening, which by the way, like, well, that's a whole other story. but like, you know, and then they, they said, OK, clear violation of our rules. Boom, you're done. Like, it's 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 really hard. Now, at this point, by the way, we should know that as of Thursday, Apple had restored Google's enterprise certificate so that its apps could function. Um, it is Friday, the day, the day that we're taping this. So a lot could change in the next 24 hours. Maybe at this point, Facebook's apps are also allowed back on. We're not entirely sure at this point. So this could be this could blow over really quickly. Um, but yeah, it's it's Apple like putting its stake in the ground and they are technically allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think in Facebook's case, it won't blow over really quickly because it's more so a question of optics. Like Facebook's had an incredibly tough two years and has seen mass changes to the way that people use its platform. I mean, people are still heavy users on Instagram and WhatsApp, but the sort of core Facebook brand, I think, has been seriously damaged in the past two years. And to have scandals like this cropping up again and again and again and again only degrades what's left of the brand cachet. So I think you know, whether or not the sort of Apple situation resolves quickly, which is likely, um, the sort of damage seems to already be done, right? Mm-hmm. People don't like to hear stories about Facebook misusing people's data or 
bribing teenagers to hand over <laughs> information about how they use their phones, right? Like, it's just a bad, bad look. Yeah, it is a terrible look. 20 bucks is 20 bucks. I mean, come on. <laughs> and I guess we should also be clear that their research app wasn't specifically focused on teens. I've seen a lot of reporting sort of get that piece wrong. It's not that they were specifically targeting teens. I think a very small percentage um, of their of their research app reached teenagers and they did require parental consent. Yep. Um, but even for adults, I think like <laughs> it's pretty easy to um, gloss over what you're mm-hmm. actually handing over. And I think the way that they marketed this app was very much like download it and forget about it, mm-hmm. um, which is very nefarious, whether you're 13 or 35. Yep. I, I think at a very high level, all of this is just us coming to terms with this this latest era of the consumer internet. Like we, the first like, I don't know, 20 to 30 years or so of the consumer internet was just all about openness and everything felt so open and we were using all these different platforms. There was interoperability. Now we're very much living in an ecosystem where there are like closed walls, you know, walled gardens, walled ecosystems, however you want to describe it. And these companies are just establishing more and more dominance in our lives, whether that's Apple, whether that's Amazon, whether that's Facebook. And once you're locked into their system, you know, you're in their system. Mm -hmm. I saw a chart today, and I don't want to like quote it exactly because I don't know off the top of my head, but basically showed how once you are in Android or iOS, you are so locked into those systems. You are Mm -hmm. very unlikely to change. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're going to spend the next several years beyond this point figuring out how to reconcile this idea of openness on the internet with these ideals of walled gardens. And this story is almost perfectly emblematic of that. Absolutely. Um, you know, we should also talk about the other thing that happened with Apple this week regarding apps and security. Uh, there was a bug that was discovered uh, uh, in FaceTime and it allowed you to hear. I shouldn't laugh. The, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so if you make a so FaceTime bad. call to somebody. Uh, and that you do a specific set of sort of actions, like adding yourself to a group call, then you can hear the audio on the person's phone, regardless of whether or not they ever pick up the phone, while the call is ringing. So that 10 seconds or so where you look at your phone and you maybe discuss with the person sitting next to you how much you really don't want to talk to this person right now, especially over FaceTime, (laughs) and then cancel it, then that person would be able to hear everything that you said during the time that the call was coming through. Uh, And this this bug was uncovered, and um, Apple has said that it's going to release a fix for it sometime in the near future, I think early this week or or maybe even today. By the time you're listening to this, it may already be fixed, Uh, but this is something that affects a billion people, right? I wonder how many people used this bug to prank their friends. Because there was definitely a window of time between when the media started picking this up Mm -hmm. and when Apple pushed out a temporary stop, which was to sort of disable Mm -hmm. group chats on on FaceTime, which I think is the right move on their part. They they handled it reasonably well. but but still, there was that window of time where you could have definitely used this uh, this information for for good or evil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and apparently, a family discovered this a while ago. That's right. And, like, tweeted about it, and no one really paid attention to it. In an Apple statement today, they actually apologized to the family, yeah. or they apologized yeah. or thanked them. Uh, I, it doesn't matter. Yeah. They handled it poorly either <laughs> yeah. way. They they recommended after the mom reported it. She's a lawyer, by the way, so she was like very you know uh, clear and aggressive about the way she was reporting it. Um, they, uh, they encouraged her to, uh, register as an Apple developer and file a bug, (laughs) which is sort of like saying, you know, GFY. (laughs) Um, but you know, I think if, if you look at Apple's position and and where they are, as far as the distribution of something that is uh, FaceTime is on every iPhone out there and there are, you know. It's a product that billions of people use every day. Disabling group chat for a billion people is not really something that Apple is going to do unless like it absolutely has to. So if this bug is made known to them, they're going to do their best to fix it as quickly as they can, then push out a fix and then tell people that, hey, we fixed this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the way that most companies would, would handle something like this. It's just the fact that it was made public made them act a little bit more quickly mm-hmm. and drastically than they probably would have normally. I kept experiencing an audio bug on my iPhone yesterday, and it was really freaking me out. And I kept thinking that something (laughs) nefarious was happening. Uh, It was actually my alarm tone. And I had no alarm set, but just intermittently throughout the day, the alarm tone was just going off. Oh, God. And then, but then I 
there was no, there wasn't even like an app or a chip or anything to turn off an alarm. It just was like the sound of it. And it was so freaky. And I tried restarting the phone and everything. Anyway, if any of you are listening right now and you're like, I've been having this problem too, DM me. Let's get together and figure this out. Maybe it's another <laughs> bug. Maybe someone's trying to listen to me in my that, meetings or something. That, I must say, would be an excellent prank. <laughs> to just trigger someone's alarm to keep going off at random intervals. Yes. It would drive them batty. It would drive Especially someone while so they're. Crazy. I was using the voice recording app a lot during this time frame. Mm. Um, I was probably fiddling with the volume buttons quite a bit. I don't know. It was really weird. Let's try to replicate it today, guys. Yeah, you must have changed something. Well, while we try to figure oh, you're, out. Oh, you're saying I'm holding it wrong is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you can punch me. It's okay. It's okay. I think while we try to figure out Lauren's uh, phone IT woes, um, we should talk about Tesla. Oh, yes. Let's go to the interview with Alex. Alex Davies, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Of course. We're going to ask you all about the latest news out of Tesla. But before we do, we have to ask you why you are bruised and bandaged and limping why it's taking me several minutes longer than it usually does to walk across this office <laughs> yeah, to the up? podcast studio. Uh, the other night, I uh, crashed my bicycle. Oh, God. I was riding home. Um, I live in Berkeley. It was dark. Berkeley is not particularly well lit. And in a lot of intersections, it has these um, rotaries that make the intersections into little roundabouts that are normally great for biking because they slow cars down. Um, but... Also, they're really bad for biking when you bike directly into them because you don't see them until the last second and you hit it, hit the little curb that surrounds it, <laughs> and then fly into it. And at that point, you hit the, um, the sign that says, look out, there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's a traffic circle here. And it... Um, So, yeah, I did that the other night. I flew right off my bike, uh, banged my leg up pretty nicely. I've got a big welt there. Uh, Scratched up my hand really badly and removed the fingernail from my right, no, my left pinky. Yeah, it's terrible. And it's also seriously slowed down my typing. Yeah, and now, Alex, you are walking in a manner that is not unlike a pirate with a peg leg. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) Um, well, it sounds like instead of biking, you could have benefited from, say, an autonomous vehicle or a Tesla that could do most of the driving for you. Yes, this is true. Although Tesla's, <laughs> we're going to use this as what they call a segue, which <laughs> also segue. would have helped. <laughs> Any of these things would be better than right. biking for you. Um, yeah, or, or a, a Tesla. Would have also worked nicely. (laughs) I would have gotten home, presumably, without horrible injuries. That's probably the best segue that's ever happened on this whole show. Yeah, thanks for uh, taking the bait there. We could also talk about segue now. But uh, (laughs) since Tesla has some news this week, um, let's talk about Tesla. So you were listening to an an earnings call this week from Tesla. Um, This is a quarterly thing that Elon Musk does to sort of bring everybody up to speed. Um, What did we learn from that call? Yeah, so this is the quarterly earnings call Tesla has to do because they're a publicly traded company. Every quarter they have to release financial results showing how many cars they've built, how much money they made, all of that stuff. And then they do a call for investors and analysts where they um, people can ask questions and Musk and his kind of the top Tesla leadership goes through those. So This quarter, the news was actually mostly good. I would say modestly good. They made a profit um, of something pretty close to $200 million, which is not quite as much as the profit they made in the third quarter of the year. Um, But that doesn't matter so much, I think, as the fact that they ended the year with a real amount of momentum since Tesla went public in 2010. This is the first time they've made money in two consecutive quarters. Normally, they lose a couple hundred million dollars per quarter, and that's not totally unexpected for a company that's building up to be an automaker, which is a business with an enormous amount of overhead, and you can really only make money once you've got your costs under control and once you're making a lot of cars or selling a lot of cars. 
And Tesla seems to have gotten to that point where they say now they're making 5,000 Model 3s a week. They expect to get that up to 7,000 and to hold that steady for pretty much the whole year. They're starting to move sales overseas. They're starting to sell the Model 3 in China and in Europe. China, which is a huge deal because it's the biggest auto market in the world and is very into electric cars. They're spinning up a factory in Shanghai, but for now they're building the cars at their factory in Fremont, not far from us in San Francisco, shipping those over. And Elon Musk announced that by the end of this year, he hopes to start tooling up Tesla's factories to build the next car Tesla will produce, which is the Model Y. Ooh. And that's that's a crossover, an SUV? Yeah, that'll be a crossover or baby SUV, which we haven't seen yet. We haven't seen any details. We don't know much about what it'll look like. But that's likely to be a very big deal, mostly because Americans hate sedans. Really? One of the most remarkable things about the Model 3 sales figures is not just that people are buying electric cars, but that people are buying the small sedan. Hmm. Americans hate sedans so much that Ford is done building them. (laughs) GM is done building them for America. They're just not building any more of those because we don't want them anymore. Americans, American taste in a shift that really started in like the late 80s, but really early 90s, have been moving more and more into SUVs, crossovers, all these things that people like because that's very much the style of the day. And now Tesla's going to join the fray and presumably if people really like that kind of car and Tesla can do what it's done for electric cars, which is take something and make it really cool and appealing, people will be super into the Model Y. So uh, the Model 3 costs how much? The Model 3 eventually should sell for $35,000. Right now, the cheapest version you can get starts at about forty-two, Which is still substantially cheaper than anything else you can buy from Tesla. Yes, the Model S and the Model X, its big SUV and its big sedan, start probably, I'm not sure if the latest, these numbers jump around, but... These are cars that people often pay six figures for. Mm. Because when you get a Model S, you often want the loaded up version. So that can easily push you north of $100,000 if you want the long range version and all of that. How much do you think um, that the Model 3's sort of price power has had an effect on Tesla's earnings? Like, I guess the way I see it is that Tesla is shifting from this company that makes luxury products and really serves a small niche of people who have a lot of money and care about electric um, toward being more of this like mass market automaker that's making stuff that a middle class person can afford to buy and might get excited about because it's a little bit less niche and a little bit similar to what you might already own in your garage. Um, is that an accurate way of thinking about it? Like, how do you see sort of the relationship between between the profitability of Tesla and the fact that the Model 3 is their, their newest offering? That's definitely the long-range vision. For years now, Elon Musk, the CEO, has been saying that he wants Tesla to be more than a niche automaker, which financially is not necessarily the greatest bet because – You can actually, if you just make a couple of luxury cars and you make them well and you've got everything under control, that can be a profitable business. It's not going to be huge. It's not going to be the size of Ford or GM. But those companies historically don't always make very much money. So it's not necessarily that getting bigger is the route to more profits. And the last several years have actually just destroyed Tesla financially because it's been ramping up to build the Model 3, because it had to build out all of these new capabilities, set up new supply chains, build up factories, made a bunch of serious mistakes along the way. <laughs> um, even Musk himself has come out and said that his original vision of an alien dreadnought factory where it could run in the dark because it would be all robots was a terrible mistake. <laughs> um, and that cost him a lot of money. It cost him a lot of time. Now what you're seeing is they're finally getting that up to scale. They're finally getting the supply chains and factory lines really under control to the point where they can start making money off the Model 3. But I think part of the reason you're still not seeing that price come down all that far is that it's still expensive. Mm-hmm. 
And just like Tesla began its business by selling very expensive sedans and SUVs, it started selling the first version of the Model 3 it offered was the most expensive version. They have not offered what they call the standard range or low range vehicle. They are only selling the extended range vehicle. They started with the performance version because those are the ones that people pay the most money for mm. and they still need to bring in a good amount of cash. Right. Now, um, there is there was something uh, that I uh, read in your story that you wrote about the earnings call where you basically just sort of broke down all the all the key points. Um, one of them was that that Musk's vision for the Model Y when they start building it is that they're going to be able to reuse a lot of the same parts and a lot of the same chassis and like the same battery and things like that from the Model 3. So does that mean that they're creating factories that can just make all of their cars or just the 3 and the Y? How is that going to play out? It's not clear exactly what will be built where or how, although it looks right now like the Model Y will be built at the Gigafactory, which is where Tesla builds parts of the Model 3, and also that's its battery plant. It's outside uh, Reno, Nevada. Musk said that something like 76% of parts will be common between the Model 3 and the Model Y. This is a pretty common thing. If you go to other big automakers, they'll be like, yeah, obviously, you keep as many common parts as possible, and that just makes it easier to build everything because then you don't need to order all these different parts. Mm -hmm. To explain this, Musk did what he often does when he's trying to explain how something will go well in the future, which is he talks about the Model X, which was... In the end, a pretty cool-looking car, but also a complete disaster. That car came out multiple years late yeah, and with horrible, horrible problems, reliability problems. It's got those cool Falcon Wings door, doors that open up and out, and those have been a disaster. Basically, and Musk has admitted that the car was just much too complicated. On the earnings call the other day, he said that it only shared something like a third of its parts with the Model S. He also referred to it as the Fabergé egg of cars, <laughs> as beautiful and a huge pain in the ass to build. And honestly, it wouldn't be surprising if not that far down the line, maybe once the Model Y is up and running, that they stop building the X altogether. Mm. Speaking of Elon Musk, that guy's had quite the year. Yes. Um, can you give us just like a quick temperature on like where Elon is at, what's happening with his investigations by the SEC? Is he still dating Grimes? What's going on? So I don't know if he's still dating Grimes. We have tried to figure it out. <laughs> Isn't that like your job, Alex? <laughs> yeah. We really need to poach some people from page six. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if he's still dating Grimes. That seems to be on again, off again. It's hard to tell. They deleted their Instagrams or they unfollowed each other on Instagram or something. Uh, that part I'm not as worried about. <laughs> Uh, he settled with the SEC uh, last year, so that seems to be mostly down, although there's still other investigations into Tesla and Musk going on. The biggest threat right now seems to be a lawsuit filed by various Tesla shareholders, which has been now grouped into a class action lawsuit that's moving along, for which the, um, the people filing the suit actually have won the right to subpoena Grimes and Azealia Banks, which is really not where I expected <laughs> this story to be going a year ago, as we we're starting off 2018. But that goes back to um, Elon Musk's tweet in August when he said that he wanted to, or that he was considering taking Tesla private at $420 a share, which he rounded up from 419 he later explained, because yeah. he thought Grimes would think it was funny. I'm sure she did. <laughs> I'm sure it was all a bucket of laughs. Anyway, they they think that he did that to um, to make them lose money, that they accuse him of manipulating the market to, um, to cause financial pain to people who have been shorting the stock. And so that, that lawsuit's moving ahead. And has the Elon Musk drama had much of an effect on Tesla? Like... I think of Tesla as being one of these companies where Elon is pretty much equivalent to Tesla. It's kind of like talking about Steve Jobs and Apple, right? They're one and the same. Um, has public perception of Elon affected anything happening with their earnings or sales of cars or anything like that? What's really remarkable is that it doesn't seem to have had much of a negative impact. 
I'm sure that Elon having what he himself has called an excruciating year wasn't good for the company because it means your CEO is not performing as well as he can be. But in terms of sales, those are going on in terms of, I mean, the stock price jumps up and down, but less it seems in relation to what he's actually doing than in relation to how the the company is doing, Mm. which is amazing to consider that in this completely insane year that he rounded it off with Tesla's like most profitable and impressive quarters so far. It'll be hard to keep that momentum up going into 2019. They did a lot of things to push sales in 2018 for various reasons. So it's not clear how that'll hold up. A lot of people have been talking about an economic slowdown. Automotive analysts have talked about expecting car sales to drop in 2019. Musk said on this call that he's optimistic that Tesla will be profitable in the first quarter of this year. Uh, But he said, but not very optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) So he's hedging his bets. Uh, One last question. You talked about China a little bit. Uh, Tesla is smartly looking to China. What is the market like there? And what's the competition like? Are they going to be able to compete when they start selling cars in volume? I think in China, there's no reason to think Tesla shouldn't be able to compete, partly for the same reasons it's able to compete in America, which is it has enormous brand cachet. What's going to be hard is that China puts huge tariffs on American cars coming in. I'm not sure exactly how that'll shake out once Tesla has a factory up and running in Shanghai, which it is now building actively. And I think for native-built cars, you don't have to worry about the tariffs as much. But right now, it's got to pay a huge markup, which means that it's convinced customers to pay a huge markup on all of its vehicles coming in. China is the world's largest auto market. It's only growing. The middle class there is booming and really getting into car ownership. And the Chinese government is huge on electric cars. They see electric cars as a way to get ahead. One, China has enormous pollution problems. So that's part of the motivation. The other part of the motivation is that for a country that historically hasn't had much of an auto sector that really has never exported its cars, certainly not into US or Europe, the way Japanese and Korean car makers have, the Chinese government seems to think that if they put a lot of money and a lot of effort into electric vehicle manufacturing right now, they can effectively leapfrog the current automotive industry and get ahead in what's looking to be the future of cars. And Tesla seems to be well positioned to uh, to grab a portion of that. Um, how does China feel about um, autonomous driving? China seems pretty into autonomous driving. One of the bigger players in the space that doesn't get talked about that much is Baidu, which is essentially China's equivalent of Google, which is putting a lot of effort into autonomous cars and fitting the same way that the Chinese government is putting a lot of effort into electric cars. It's doing the same thing with artificial intelligence, which is a major component of self-driving car research. So they seem pretty well positioned to uh, to ride that baby, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on the show, Alex. Thank you. I will limp my way out of here now. (laughs) Thanks, Alex. If you enjoyed that discussion with Alex Davies about all things Tesla, then you should definitely totally fully subscribe to the new Wired Transportation newsletter that he's editing. The weekly email newsletter delivers not only the latest Tesla news, but also updates on scooters, e-bikes, planes, trains, self-driving automobiles, and even the rocket ships being used in the new space race. Go to wired.com transportation or follow the link to the Wired Transportation newsletter in the show notes. And now let's do our recommendations. Ariel, you are up first. Great. I would like to recommend something that I wrote about this week which is a new product from the mattress in a box company, Casper. Oh boy. Casper has introduced their first piece of hardware um, and it is a beautiful glowing bedside lamp called the Glow. Um, It's an interesting move for the company, which has up until now only made uh, super comfy mattresses and pillows and dog beds and bed sheets and (laughs) And stuff like that. And a magazine. Yeah, yeah. They 
are sort of embarking on this new quest to become more than just a mattress company and more like a company that sells you sleep in all kinds of different ways. And their first um, product in this new landscape is is the Glow. Uh, it's a small lamp. It looks kind of like a HomePod. So it's sort of cylindrical and white and just very minimalist. It does look a lot like a HomePod. It looks a lot mm-hmm. like a HomePod. Um, they're designers for the record. I, someone brought this up when I visited their lab and they were like, uh, we actually worked on this before the HomePod came out. <laughs> I was like, all right, buddy. <laughs> Good for you. Um, it looks like a HomePod and it has super, super minimalist functionality. Um, Basically, you turn it over and it triggers this dim sequence that very slowly dims the lights um, while you wind down for bed. And then when you wake up, it slowly brightens the room. So it, it functions kind of like a Philips wake up alarm clock, mm-hmm. which is a great product as well, um, except that it also has a dim down function. Um, but it's not connected to anything. It doesn't play music. It doesn't track your sleep. It's just meant to sort of create a nice warm glow in your room, uh, and help guide you off to sleep. And, uh, it's very pleasant. I've, I've only had it for a couple of days, so I can't report on like any drastic improvements in my sleep quality, but I really like it and it's very beautifully designed. And if you're the type of person who's interested in getting into sleep tech, but you're a little bit wary of, uh, the sort of wearable space, the tracker space, the high-tech connected cameras, Wi-Fi, voice assistants, like if that all feels really overwhelming to you, as it does to me, then I think this is a nice sort of way to get into sleep tech without getting too techie. How much does it cost? You can buy them uh, as a single standalone device, which costs $89, or you can buy them as a pair for $169. And one of the cool things about getting them as a pair, or even like you could get six or 12 of them, is that you can connect them to each other over Bluetooth, and then turning one over will trigger the dim sequence for all of them, uh, which is really like beautiful sort of prayer candle-esque mood. Um, and could be nice if you set these up in like a really big room or like you want to have one on your nightstand and one on your partner's nightstand. Tell them about the wiggle. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I completely <laughs> forgot the most important functionality of this. Um, so a lot of a lot of sleep tech has become kind of judgmental. Um this was a big piece of how Casper designed the product is that they they wanted to get away from this idea that like we've all become really stressed out about our sleep. Like we're not getting enough sleep. We're not getting enough REM sleep. Like we're tracking it, but we're like unhappy with what we're finding. And like there's all this advice about like go to sleep at this time and don't bring your phone in the room and like don't do this. And like if you're not doing these things and you're fucking it up, uh, Casper wanted this to be like very non-judgmental. So one of the things they built in was like you might get up in the middle of the night. Like you might have to pee, you might have to like soothe your kid who's crying, you might want a glass of water. And when you do that, um, you shouldn't have to turn on all the lights and like stumble around. So one of the things the glow can do is that if you gently wiggle it, just the bottom third of it glows and it has a, a light detecting sensor so it can sense how bright it is in the room. And then it go, it just adjusts just the brightness that will get you through the room without being too bright. And then you use it as like a lantern as you walk around the house in the night. What a time to be alive. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) this is like, I mean, really, bed lights are so smart now. I know, it's it's cool. Um, (laughs) I I really like it, I think think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's cool. It is cool. (laughs) No, real, I mean, this is like, this stuff is wild. Totally Thanks to Bluetooth, one. you know. Right. Casper Glow. Casper Lauren, Glow. Um, Lauren, who doesn't love to sleep as much as I do, what is your recommendation? I don't really have a great one this week because I was traveling a portion of the week, and I often find that that just means I'm not, like, living life and doing things. Um, <laughs> but uh, And also getting very confused about time zones wherever <laughs> I land. But... I did start a book this week that I'm pretty sure I'm going to end up recommending. So it's it's like a pre recommendation if I may if I may do that. It's a called recommendo. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, it's called Made by Stephanie Land, and I had read an excerpt in the New York Times, and it just sparked my interest enough to order the book. She is a uh, she's a writer, and she wrote the book, but she. Um, worked for a long time as a, uh, a cleaning woman, a maid, um, while she was you know, raising her young daughter as a single parent and 
I say was, but I mean she still is like raising her daughter as a single parent. From what I, when I, what, from what I understand, but um, yeah, so far I'm just I'm just in the first chapter, but it seems to be a fantastic book and um, a real eye opener, and um, that's what I'm reading right now. All right, made, mm-hmm. made, M A I D, M A I D by Stephanie Land. <laughs> yes, um, my recommendation is a show that was on in the fall of last year, and I just was told about and just binged over the last week, and it's fantastic. Wait, I have some questions before you reveal the name. Yes, is it in a foreign language with subtitles? No. Is it highly stylized, like in black and white or something? No. Is it? Something that's definitely too hip for Lauren and I that we'll never oh have heard God. of. Oh, my God. This is what you really think of me. No. <laughs> Swedish prog rock. No. <laughs> it is none of those things. It's a delightful American show on a channel called American Movie Classics, which doesn't show movies anymore. Uh, it's an AMC show. It's called Lodge 49. Never heard of it. Right. Never heard of it. So weirdly, like AMC, you know, they have uh, what are their big shows. They had Mad Men. They have The Walking Dead. Um, oh, I can't remember their other big one that they have. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Lodge 49, one of their like big shows, but they didn't really publicize it that well. It didn't like resonate with the public at all. It got really high regards from critics. So I was like, okay, I should check it out. It showed up at the end of the year on all of those lists that are like the best TV you didn't see in 2018, right? So I watched it. It's fantastic. Um, it's uh, very, very quickly, it's about uh, a brother and a sister who are twins. Uh, their father has died a year previously and left them with a uh, crazy debt. The, the brother doesn't work. Uh, he's like super depressed and he's uh, injured his foot and he just like basically hangs out on the beach and sleeps in his car. Uh, and then his sister is like struggling to get by and pay off this massive debt. And she works as a server in a restaurant that's sort of like a cross between like TGI Fridays and Hooters. Um, it's a really funny show. It's an hour long drama. And it's one of those shows where he's just sort of like the guy, the main character, the brother just sort of falls into these situations that advance his life in a particular direction that you like never see coming. It's really wild. Um, the the main actor is um, Wyatt Russell, who is the son of Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. Uh, so he's been around a bit. He was in a Black Mirror episode. Uh, he was in a couple of TV shows about four or five years ago. This mm-hmm. is his first like big starring role in a drama. Mm. And he's fantastic. Um, he's also very handsome. Yes, he is. By he's, BTW. He's, he's a good looking dude. <laughs> yeah. He's got the beard going for him, which I very much appreciate. Anyway, um, it's a great show. I, I don't want to say anything more about it other than to say um, fantastic acting, uh, fantastic cast, really good music. Uh, and very well-written dialogue. So, like, it ha- it checks all the boxes. My favorite thing about it is that everybody on the show is drowning in debt. So everybody on the show, like, owes $3,000, $40,000, $80,000 to somebody, and they're just working to, like, pay off their debt. And they hate their debt, and it consumes them, and it starts to define them, and then that makes them bitter. And, like, that is sort of the underlying tone of the show, which is really interesting because that's what is happening right now in America. And they never mm-hmm. explicitly talk about that on the show. It's just it's just part of the way the characters are written, which is really fantastic. All the rich people on the show are scammers. They're all hollow people who are just there to take your money and make all these promises they never deliver on and then just abscond with the funds. So it's a very uh, – uh, a very, like – sort of timely look at American society. Lodge 49. It sounds great. I totally checked that out. You can find it on Hulu. Okay, that's great because mm-hmm. I just resubscribed to Hulu to watch Fire Festival. <laughs> but so but now that I'm done with that, this sounds like a great thing to move on to. By the way, you made a recommendation of Roma on uh-huh. Netflix a few weeks ago. I don't remember if you did it on the show or if you did it directly to us mm-hmm. at our at our pod. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up watching it, and it was fantastic. It's beautiful. And wasn't it's it in beautiful. black and white with subtitles? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, of course. Very on brand. <laughs> Very on brand for my glory. How about it? But an absolutely beautiful film, and I cried and cried, and it was. I thought it was really well done. Oh, so good. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for listening, of course, uh, even you know, even though I didn't recommend something that was totally on my <laughs> bullshit like R.L. wanted me to. Um, it was always next week. <laughs> 
Uh, you can find us all on Twitter. I am at Snackfight. Lauren Good is at Lauren Good with, with an, an e, e at the end. Uh, Ariel is Pardesoteric. It's a portmanteau. Alex Davies is what? Alexander Davies? Alex Davies? No, What's he's it's something different. A oh. Davies 47 or something. Yeah. <laughs> It's like it it's is. like it's like A Davies loves the Mets. I it's don't know. It's something like 47. that. Yeah. Like, wow, <laughs> I'm a true fan. Good. That was good. Follow Alex. Um, re subscribe. Subscribe to his newsletter. Yeah. Say. <laughs> Smash the subscribe button. <laughs> uh, and you can talk to all of us at Gadget Lab on Twitter. See you next week. Yes, I'm gonna go buy some smart lights. That sounds so cool. Oh man, I feel silly. Um, I'll introduce you. I'll ask you to talk about your crash. Okay. Yeah, that's a great icebreaker. <laughs> or right. like right. bone breaker. Oh. But um bum. <laughs> I'm in a very silly mood all of a sudden. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.